Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Hemingway List podcast. Epilogue 1, Chapter 16, then we're starting Epilogue 2. Is Pierre, sorry, start again, in Pierre's opinion, all their quarrels have to do with Natasha's jealousy about a woman in Petersburg. Who is this woman and what happened to make Natasha jealous of her? And what do you think is the meaning behind Nikolenka's dream? I love to end it with a dream. It's so symbolic and, I don't know, leaves so much up to the reader's interpretation <sighs> although it is kind of frustrating to not know what it all means twisted every way says wow what a weird chapter to end the story on i can't believe we're at the second epilogue just 12 more days no idea about the woman in petersburg i don't specifically know about russia during this time but i know it was common to have mistresses and such and pierre wasn't too adamant about reassuring natasha not sure if after all this time pierre is the type my hope is that little Nicholas's dream doesn't make him follow the path of his father. He probably feels there's a lot to live up to. Brett Peterson says, according to the article by Denton, this is the last we will see our characters. My, how they have grown on me. When I first met Pierre, I didn't like him at all. We grew, He grew on me and grew as a person so that now I am sad to be done with him. I do. I did love the conversation between Pierre and Natasha today, though. They note in my Maud translation says Tolstoy's story, The Devil, can lend understanding to Natasha's questions, Did you see her? So I guess I'll have to look that up. I see much of Andre in Little Nikolai, which is strange seeing how they are. They hardly knew each other. But Nikolai, Nikolai's grandiose views of war and his abilities to make himself grand through war are just what got his father killed. I hope he will realise that war is hell and choose the intellectual path Pierre is presenting him instead of the soldier's life of his father. Well, I didn't know, even though I've read this before, that that was the last we see of our characters. I f- guess I forgot how it, how it wraps up. I can't really remember any of the next, whatever it is, 12 characters. How many chapters are in the epilogue? It's the second epilogue. FDLP says one... FDLP1 says, Weird final impression of our main characters. I guess little Nikolai's dream signals us to get ready for Tolstoy on war from here on out. Yeah. I think you're right. It's just going to be a bunch of war talk, so I feel strange knowing that that's the end of the characters. And really, the rest of the book is just bullshit. I still have this slight hope that we will revisit our characters once more at least in the second epilogue just to check in on them maybe not you know a scene with them but maybe just references to them or something like that but yeah man i just i don't know let's read epilogue uh second epilogue chapter one goes like this history oh i'm already bored (laughs) I'm already bored. I'm already over it. The first word. I don't care, Tolstoy. Here we go. History is the life of nations and of humanity. To seize and put into words to describe directly the life of humanity or even a single nation appears impossible. The ancient historians all employed one and the same method to describe and seize the apparently elusive the life of a people. They described the activity of individuals who ruled the people and regarded the activity of those men as representing the activity of a whole nation. 
The question, how did individuals make nations act as they wished, and by what was the will of these individuals themselves guided, the ancients met by recognising a divinity which subjected the nations to the will of a chosen man, and guided the will of that chosen man so as to accomplish ends that were predestined. For the ancients, these questions were solved by a belief in the direct participation of the deity in human affairs. Modern history, in theory, rejects both these principles. It would seem that having rejected the belief of the ancients in man's subjection of the deity and in a predetermined aim toward which nations are led, modern history should study not the manifestations of power but the causes that produce it. But modern history has not done this. Having, in theory, rejected the view held by the ancients, it still follows them in practice. Instead of men endowed with divine authority and directly guided by the will of God, modern history has given us either heroes endowed with extraordinary superhuman cap- capacities, or simple men of very various kinds, from monarchs to journalists who lead the masses, instead of the former divinely appointed aims of the Jewish, Greek, or Roman nations, which ancient historians regarded as representing the progress of humanity. Modern history has postulated its own aims, the welfare of the French, German, and English people, or, in its highest abstraction, the welfare of and civilization of humanity in general, by which is usually meant that of the peoples occupying a small northwesterly portion of a large continent. Modern history has rejected the beliefs of the ancients without replacing them by a new conception, and the logic of the situation has obliged the historians after they had apparently rejected the divine authority of the kings and the fate of the ancients to reach the same conclusion by another road, that is, to recognise one, nations guided by individual men, and two, the existence of a known aim to which these nations and humanity at large are tending at the basis of the works of the modern historians from Gibbon to Buckle, despite their seeming disagreements and the apparent novelty of their outlooks lie these two old unavoidable assumptions. In the first place, the historian describes the activity of individuals who, in his opinions, have directed humanity. One historian considers only monarchs, generals and ministers as being such men, while other while another includes also orators, learned men, reformers, philosophers and poets. Secondly, it is assumed that the goal toward which humanity is being led is known to the historians. To one of them, this goal is the greatness of the Roman, Spanish or French realm. To another, it is liberty, equality and a certain kind of civilization of a small corner of the world called Europe. In 1789, a ferment arises in Paris. It grows spreads and is expressed by a movement of peoples from west to east. Several times it moves eastward and collides with the counter-movement from the east westward. In 1812 it reaches its extreme limit, Moscow, and then with remarkable symmetry a counter-movement occurs from east to west, attracting to it, as the first movement had done, the nations of Middle Europe. The counter-movement reaches the starting point of the first movement in the West Paris and subsidies, sorry, and subsides. During that 20-year period, an immense number of fields were left untilled, houses were burned, trade changed its directions, millions of men migrated, were impoverished or were enriched, and millions of Christian men, professing the law of love of their fellows, slew one another. What does all this mean? Why did it happen? What What made those people burn houses and slay their fellow men? What were the causes of these events? What force made men act so? 
These are the instinctive, plain and most legitimate questions humanity asks itself when it encounters the monuments and tradition of that period. For a reply to these questions, the common sense of mankind turns to the science of history whose aim is to enable nations and humanity to know themselves. If history had retained the conception of the ancients, it would have said that God, the reward, or punish his people, he gave Napoleon power and directed his will to the fulfilment of the divine ends, and that reply would have been clear and complete. One might believe or disbelieve in the divine significance of Napoleon, but for anyone believing in it, there would have been nothing unintelligible in the history of that period, nor would there have been any contradictions. But modern history cannot give that reply. Science does not admit the conception of the ancients, as to the direct participation of the deity in human affairs, and therefore history ought to give other answers. Modern history, replying to these questions, says you want to know what this movement means, what caused it, and what force produced these events, then listen. Louis XIV was a very proud and self-confident man. He had such and such mistresses and such and such ministers, and he ruled France badly. His descendants were weak men, and they too ruled France badly, and they had such and such favourites and such and such mistresses. Moreover, certain men wrote some books at that time. At the end of the 18th century, there were a couple of dozen men in Paris who began to talk about all men being free and equal. This caused people all over France to begin to slash at, the slash at and drown one another. They killed the king and many other people. At that time, there was a, in France a man of genius, Napoleon. He conquered everybody everywhere. That is, he killed many people because he was a great genius. And for some reason, he went to kill Africans and killed them so well and was so cunning and wise that when he returned to France, he ordered everybody to obey him and they all obeyed him. Having become an emperor, he again went out to kill people in Italy, Austria and Prussia. And there too, he killed a great many. In Russia, there was an emperor, Alexander, who decided to restore order in Europe and therefore fought against Napoleon. In 1807, he suddenly made friends with him. And in 1811, they again quarreled and again began killing many people. Napoleon led 600,000 men into Russia and captured Moscow. Then he suddenly ran away from Moscow, and the Emperor Alexander, helped by the advice of Stein and others, united Europe to arm against the disturber of its peace. All Napoleon's allies suddenly became his enemies, and their forces advanced against the French forces he raised. The allies defeated Napoleon, entered Paris, forced Napoleon to abdicate, and sent him to the island of Elba not depriving him of the title of emperor and showing him every respect, though five years before and one year later they all regarded him as an outlaw and a brigand. Then Louis XVIII, who till then had been the laughing stock both of the French and the Allies, began to reign, and Napoleon, shedding tears before his old guards, renounced the throne and went into exile. Then the skillful statesmen and diplomatists, especially Talleyrand, who managed to sit down in a particular chair before anyone else and thereby extend the frontiers of France, talked in Vienna, and by these conversations made the nations happy or unhappy. Suddenly the diplomatists and monarchs nearly quarrelled and were on the point of again ordering their armies to kill one another, but just then Napoleon arrived in France with a battalion, and the French, who had been hating him, immediately all submitted to him. 
But the Allied monarchs were angry at this and went to fight the French one more and they defeated the genius Napoleon and suddenly recognising him as a brigand sent him to the island of St. Helena and the exile separated from the beloved France so dear to his heart died a lingering death on that rock and bequeathed his great deeds to posterity. But in Europe a reaction occurred and the sovereigns once again all began to oppress their subjects. It would be a mistake to think that this is ironic caricature of the historical accounts. On the contrary, it is a very mild expression of the contradictory replies, not meeting the questions which all the historians give, from the compliers of memoirs and the histories of separate states to the writers of general histories and the new histories of the culture of that period. The strangeness and absurdity of these replies arise from the fact that modern history, like a deaf man, answers questions no one has asked. If the purpose of history be to give a description of the movement of humanity and of the peoples, the first question in the absence of a reply to which all the rest will be incomprehensible is, what is the power that moves people? To this modern history laboriously replies either that Napoleon was a great genius or that Louis the Fourteenth was very proud or that certain writers wrote certain books. All that may be so... All that may be so, and mankind is ready to agree with it, but it is not what was asked. All that would be interesting if we recognised a divine power based on itself and always consistently directing its nations through Napoleons, Lewises and writers, but we do not acknowledge such a power, and therefore, before speaking of Napoleons, Lewises and authors, we ought to be shown the connection existing between these men and the movement of the nations. If instead of divine power some other force has appeared, it should be explained in what this new force consists, for the whole interest of history lies precisely in that force. History seems to assume that this force is self-evident and known to everyone, but in spite of every desire to regard it as known, anyone reading many historical works cannot help doubting whether this new force, so variously understood, by the historians themselves, is really quite well known to everybody. And that's the end of the chapter. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.